Welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, Cole Zwicker is here. We're going to break down some early season action uh, throughout the NBA, including some bummer uh, situations involving the top two picks in the 2018 NBA draft. Uh, And then we're going to talk about some extensions. We didn't do extensions on the last podcast. I have some thoughts that I want to talk about with Jalen Brown and Demonis Sabonis and Buddy Heald and all of these guys, Pascal Siakam that got extensions. So uh, Cole, how are you doing, man? Doing great. It's been uh, awesome to have the NBA back. You kind of get back into the rhythm and there's just a ton to catch up on watching games and then watching on Synergy. So uh, I I love it, man. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's always a really hard part of the year because you want to try and catch as much as you can, right? Um, The way that I tend... Right. The way that I tend to operate is that, you know, I might watch a game at night uh, while it's happening live, but most of the time I'm going to catch games on Synergy the next day. Like I'll wake up at seven o'clock, run through two games and then just kind of go from there. And once you get into a really good rhythm uh, throughout the course of the season, you feel like you've seen everyone, you know, 10 times. But (laughs) the problem is that Early in the season, you feel like you just want to see everyone, right? So you want to try and catch like six games, seven games or something out of the 20 or so that have been played. And or it's probably not even 20 that have been played. It's probably more like eh, it might be close. Um, <laughs> and like you really just want to you want to be in tune with everything early on. And it's hard. Yeah. And I think Wednesday night, like the real NBA opener, I actually went to a Sounders game, which is kind of nice, actually, because I do feel that way. Like I want to get to as many games as possible and you kind of overwhelm yourself. And I went to the Sounders game, came back, got back at like 1030. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to watch Luca. And then it just worked out that way. <laughs> fuck it i'm just gonna watch luca that is the uh (laughs) just the just the way this podcast goes um (laughs) all right so let's jump right in we're going to be sponsored today by manscaped and by bet online uh let's talk about the deandre ayton and marvin bagley situations so uh deandre ayton actually swiped down and uh stripped marvin bagley while bagley was going up for a shot at the basket And Marvin Bagley broke his thumb and is going to be out for four to six weeks. That is a huge, huge bummer as someone who bought a whole lot of Marvin Bagley stock coming into the year. Yeah, it was not a good opening night for the Kings overall, just to to put it bluntly. I mean, they looked, I don't know if you watched that game, but the Kings looked miserable on both ends of the floor just did not look good communication offense i don't really know what luke walton was doing buddy oh, they, they looked like a with, disaster yeah and like buddy was like initiating sets and he, he shot the hell out of the ball buddy had a great first half kind of kept him in that game and overshadowed i think the king's looking even worse than people some people are even talking about but the bagley thing i actually pulled that clip for aiden being like i kind of liked how he reacted on the interior i posted that on twitter and then i went back when when the bagley injury was listed and i was like is that the play and i think it might have been so just really unfortunate for the Kings, man. I uh, really like that fan base and it sucks. Well, I like the team too. It's just that they, I don't want to blame Luke Walton after one game, right? Cause like, look, uh, having a new coach is hard. The transition is really difficult. And I think that like, certainly there's still hope for the Kings here. Like there should be, but yeah, that team was really fun last year under Dave Yeager. He just let the kids go. And this year there was no sense of that whatsoever. It was like an attempt to be more structured. And I didn't like the way 
that they structurally set it up. Yeah, the minutes allocation was was different. Um, we've, that's been kind of an early season trend. Like the Pelicans played twelve guys. The Pelicans are really deep, but still, like there's been the a Pelicans lot of interesting played twelve decisions. guys in like what sixteen minutes. Yeah, it's crazy. Like they everybody in the rotation that played played over ten minutes. We can maybe get to that in a minute. But yeah, just overall, I thought that was kind of a trend. Is coaches experimenting more with depth? Of course, Fox was in foul trouble, so that obviously impacted the result, especially in the second half. But yeah, I didn't like what I saw from Sacramento and Bagley. Didn't have a good game. Um, I thought Aiton outplayed him pretty significantly in this one. But uh, I think the overarching takeaway is just the Kings are. I think the expectations got a little bit too high with them just because people are really excited about them. They're really fun to watch. I think that those needed to be tempered, but they're still a really fun team. And this is really unfortunate because for Kings fans, you still like the primary emphasis is watching your young players develop. This is not about this season. It's about, you know, two to three years down the line and and watching Bagley's improvement. Yeah. I'm not sure that I can remember De'Aaron Fox playing a worse game than what he did uh, on Wednesday, all of last year. He was like genuinely just really bad and out of sorts. And yeah, there was the foul trouble, but like he tossed out like five turnovers. Like he, he was just like terrible. I, I don't know what it was. It was weird. Yeah, he definitely doesn't look like his last year's self. He pushed a couple times in transition. I think he was a little bit better than his stats with any hit just because he creates so many looks with his aggressiveness. But I, I, I generally agree. I, I didn't see that same dynamism in his game. He yeah. was playing. It seemed like he was playing more off the ball to me. Like whenever I, I, I watched that game and it felt like Heald was tasked with a lot more than he typically is. And Fox was operating more off the ball in the half court too much. I think you got to get the ball in Fox's hands, play some pick and roll, bagley and kind of space the floor that way. Yeah, it was just a very weird. And then like bogey was terrible as well. Um, like it was just a, it was a weird game for them. And uh, it's a bummer that Bagley is going to be out. They do have like the horses to be able to uh, make up for that loss. They can move Barnes down to the four and put a reason in the starting lineup. Uh, they can play Bielitsa just as a pure four now. Like they're, they have a lot of options that they can go down the road of now. So I will be interested to see how they do that because they really actually kind of need, I don't want to say like game two is a must win for the Kings, but (laughs) at some point in the next like three weeks, they're going to need to like figure things out without Marvin Bagley. Yeah. And they have some depth. Uh, They're going to lose something. I mean, Bagley is such a special play finisher for what he does. They can't really replace him, but yeah, they can, they do have some lineup versatility. Ariza looked horrendous in this game. I thought that some of their depth pieces like Ariza, especially just looked a little bit washed. It was more like what I saw from Ariza with Phoenix last year, but having Bogdanovich off the bench really helps and having Barnes, the ability to go from the three to the four, it's going to compromise them a little bit. And I think Deadman only played what, like 15 minutes in this game or 16. It was just a little weird. It was just, it was not what I was expecting from the Kings. Yeah. Yeah. He played like fewer minutes, I think, than Rashawn Holmes did. And like, I didn't really yes. like what Holmes gave them at all. It was weird. It was a weird, all of it was weird. All, that team was really fun last year and they were not fun in game one. I hope that that changes. Uh, the Suns, on the other hand, and let's move to DeAndre Ayton now. DeAndre Ayton was fantastic in that game, I thought. 18 points, 11 rebounds, four blocks. That was a career high. He was. Uh, I mean, look, like there were still moments of him on defense where he got like lost and was a little bit lackadaisical, right? But for the most part, his defense was a lot more engaged than we saw last year. It was a lot more effective at the basket. He seems like he's figured out the principle of verticality a little bit better in terms of just 
being in the right place and jumping up and down or even staying on the ground, just letting his natural length be able to take over. Um, in general, like he's always been able to move on the perimeter. Like that's not really a real concern. Uh, he was fine at that in this game as well. Uh, there are always going to be those moments where he's not like exceptional on defense, but this was probably his best defensive game that I've seen in his career. And I've probably watched, I don't know, 40 of his pro games now. I mean, you've probably watched them all at this stage because you were there last year, but like it's, he's very interesting. And I was very interested in the growth that he undertook. Yeah, no question. It was definitely one of the stronger defensive games I've seen him play in college as well. Like I just his drop coverage. He really has improved as a pick and roll defender. He's making better decisions. He's has better positioning. Yeah. I posted a couple of clips on Twitter like he took like a half step in the right direction, forced Bogdanovich to like make a decision with a floater and then contested the shot. Just literally just getting him to put his arms up consistently is going to make yeah. a huge difference because he's, he's huge and he hasn't done that consistently. So I, I did like a lot of what he showed. I, I think his defense in certain respects I talked about this on Twitter as well. I think he gets overly criticized in certain elements. Like he is good at some stuff. Like he's good at keeping the ball in front when the play is in front of him. I thought he did a really good job on Marvin Bagley in one-on-one situations. He really contested those shots well. He's he's always been pretty good at that. Like that's why I wanted him to guard Giannis last year. It's like there are certain elements of defense that he's strong at. Still some lapses off the ball. I think those are going to be there pretty consistently, but there's progress. And that's what makes uh, the the news that you probably want to get to now such a bummer for him and for the Suns. So DeAndre, oh my God, DeAndre Ayton uh, was suspended for 25 games uh, after a drug test revealed a diuretic uh, and in his bloodstream. I cannot envision a world where this was intentional and indeed the NBA Players Association is going to fight it based off of that. Um, DeAndre is just kind of a dude that's always been super jacked. Uh, For people who don't know, diuretics, the reason that they are banned is because sometimes they are used to mask steroid usage. And certainly we are not in any way, shape or form accusing DeAndre Ayton of that. I just want to put some context on, oh, why is this a thing that someone is being suspended for? Um, He's just always been like a big jacked kid. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine that DeAndre Ayton knows what's going into his body to the point where he'd be able to pull off some sort of, uh, crazy uh, situation where it's like a controlled uh, situation where he's trying to cheat the drug system, uh, the drug testing system in the <laughs> NBA. Yeah, I'm not even going to speculate on any of this. I'll just say the burden of proof. You have to prove clear and convincing evidence that there's been no significant fault or negligence in the ingestion. And I think Bobby Marks has talked about this a little bit. I, I don't think that Aiden's going to win the appeal. I, I think that the burden of proof is pretty high to overturn it so even if he doesn't I mean, let's say he gets reduced by a couple of games in best case scenario it's, it's still a blow to the suns um and, and that's kind of the key takeaway for me I, i'm not going to get into like any kind of intent or negligence on aiden's part i mean clearly something was negligent but i'm not going to assign any blame necessarily without knowing more of the facts yeah for sure it is a huge bummer just based off of what we saw in game one and it's a huge bummer just because we want to see more of this guy on the court uh offensively i thought that they utilized him in a better way as well uh i believe that kevin pelton had this number that his average shot length in this game was 4.3 feet whereas uh last year it was 6.7 feet so if you get this guy around the basket he's just an unstoppable force so it seems like phoenix is utilizing him better on both ends now and uh i hope that it gets 
reduced. I, I don't like, that's just really where I'm at. Like, I hope that it gets reduced so we get to see him on the court more. Like I, I, even reducing it by half would be fantastic. In my opinion, I really hope that happens, but I have no idea on just the facts of the case at this stage um, beyond what's been reported. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing with me is you just hope he gets back on the floor. Like this is like the Suns finally experienced a little bit of optimism in the first game. Like they, I think they really impressed. I think a lot of people were pegging the Kings to, to win that game. Not, maybe not considerably, but definitely win. And then the Suns to win in that way with Rubio interacting well with Aiton, some of the Booker Aiton pick and roll late in the game. I, I agree that they were getting, they just have guys who can pass better. Like Rubio's going to get Aiton the ball. I think there was this one play where Rubio got a kick out from Aiton, drew two guys to him, and immediately, instead of shooting, just passed it right back inside. And like he's going to do that stuff. He's going to find Aiton in more advantageous situations. Utilization is probably similar. I think it's more just like the personnel with better, you know, an actual point guard who sees the floor and has a mission to get this guy involved. That's going to happen consistently, which is such a bummer because, again, I do feel like the Suns, they're not going to be good this year. But I think they're going to be competent, and you watch them on a night-to-night basis to assess the development. It's not going to be something really you probably see in the win-loss record, but it's going to be something that you see them competitive in games, and they were obviously competitive in this game. So it might be a time to bet against the Phoenix Suns without DeAndre Ayton. It might be a time to bet against the Sacramento Kings, too, while they're really struggling. And to do that, you can go to betonline.ag. The football season is in full swing. Get into the game with our exclusive sports betting partners, betonline.ag. Sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit to start betting college or professional football. Every spread, every total, every winner or loser, straight bets, parlays, teasers, uh, whatever way you want, you can do it this season. Uh, You can even bet on wild prop bets, like if the Dolphins will win a game. Uh, Get the fastest to market odds, updates, and payouts with our new sportsbook partners, betonline.ag. Head over to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% bonus. That's promo code CLNS550 to receive that 50% welcome bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Let's go on ahead and move on just to some other early season thoughts. I think it's uh, worth discussing Carl Towns. I did like a nice little Twitter thread about what I really liked, what I saw from Carl Towns in the Minnesota defense. Uh, Minnesota brought in a new defensive coordinator this offseason in David Vanterpool. He was with Portland for you know many years, and Portland has developed this really impressive drag-and-drop pick-and-roll strategy that has really helped their uh, immobile big guys not uh, – struggle away from the basket. Now, this strategy does have downsides. The downside is Kyrie Irving going for 50 because these lead guards who have good floater games, who have good in-between games, they can get an open shot pretty easily a lot of the time. But these are shots that tend to be less efficient than shots at the basket or than shots uh, out on the perimeter from three. So you're kind of playing the math game with this defense, right? Uh, The other thing that I will note here is that Minnesota's guards, their lead guards are Shabazz Napier and Jeff Teague. These guys are just not very good at fighting through screens, right? Uh, just kind of is what it is. And I think for them to reach their peak uh, as a defensive team, they're going to need to get in better guards defensively. But overall, I think that Carl Towns was awesome on defense in that game. He blocked three shots, had a couple of steals. He was consistent in contesting at the basket. He was really, really good, I thought. I mean, that's obviously great to hear because I only watched 
just for context, I only watched Towns' offensive possessions just because I had to see. I did not watch this game contextualized at all as far as defense, offense, any of that. So I don't really know about the coverage. I agree with you, though. Typically, those over-and-drop coverages, you need like a Bledsoe or a George Hill to get over the top and really pressure. Because what you're trying to do is force those off-balance, mid-range shots, the floaters. Like if teams can really get to that pull-up three and they have that kind of lead guard, I'm not sure how many threes right. off the dribble that Kyrie hit. But like that's what you don't want. You want somebody who can disincentivize that. That's what the Philly does so well with like Thibel and, and Josh Richardson as they apply incredible back pressure to take that shot away. But uh, I mean, Towns, if he's playing defense, holy shit, because I mean, the offense, he looks like a guard out there. Like some of his step back footwork and like release on his three, like just run the damn offense through him completely. Like I, I, I've seen some reactions on Twitter about Wiggins taking like 27 shots. Just give Towns the fucking basketball, dude. This guy's incredible. It was hilarious. There was one possession where like, Jared Allen did literally everything that he possibly could have. He pushed Carl Towns, who was posting up like 20 feet away from the basket. He did literally every single thing he is taught to do and played perfect defense. And Carl <laughs> Towns got the entry pass 20 feet away from the basket, stepped back beyond the three-point arc, and just fucking made a three. Like, how do you defend that, I guess, is my question. Like, if you're Jared Allen, what do you do in that circumstance? You've literally just executed your job, and then this guy's just a fucking cheat code and can knock down threes like a guard. Like, not even just a guard, but like Kyle fucking Corver out there. <laughs> and it's just ridiculous. Carl Towns is unbelievable and if he's playing defense now like if this defensive scheme that i think is a perfect fit for him continues to showcase itself that way i am very excited to see where this timberwolves team goes because they actually have like a lot of competent pieces now like Jarrett culver looks like he's gonna be able to play a role as a rookie um you do have guys now like Jake Lehman who can come in and provide minutes. Someone like Jordan Bell theoretically can come in and provide minutes. Noah Vonley is like the best backup center in the NBA probably. Like he, they have real competent uh, depth now in a way that they haven't had in a while. And if Towns is this good, I wonder if they can actually compete for a playoff. Yeah, and they probably deserve to be in that group just outside of the eight seed. I, I, I have them as like the 13th seed coming into the year, and maybe they deserve to be a little bit higher if they're going to scheme defense well enough to where Towns can just beat you offensively. I think my favorite play from Towns in this game, he like initiated one of their sets off the dribble and like had a shot fake and got somebody in the air, and it was like a step back, and he drew the foul for a three, and it's just like yeah. there's no big man in the NBA that can do that. I know Miles Turner hit that like step back three and stuff, but Towns can do that consistently now. Like you have to guard him off the dribble. If you press up on him, he can take you off the bounce with the fluidity. And uh, it's just like I, his offensive game is so unique. I, I don't know if I've ever seen someone quite so fluid on the perimeter that can also take you down low. Like he can punish you. He's physical. He can like drop that shoulder. He has excellent touch. Uh, underrated passer. If you can scheme his defense and put him in drop, that was always the thing with Kentucky. Like he was around the rim more. He wasn't like in space or like right. coming, pressing up. He kind of has, he doesn't have the greatest feet. He has huge shoes and like he doesn't move like that well. If you can get him in drop to where you can just utilize his size and guys like Covington can cover on on the wings, for example, I think that that's the recipe. And that's why I think Culver is going to have a bigger role as the season goes on because he's just a much more intuitive defender than someone like Wiggins. That could probably help them out on the wings paired with uh, Covington as well. Well, it's funny. I actually think that Towns moves pretty well over short spaces, which is where this defense uh, will put him now. Like, 
like he's pretty good at taking like that one initial slide because he does have that like little bit of initial burst. The problem is when he has to take like two or three of them in a row and remain like coordinated out on the perimeter against a like little guard, right? Um, these like little small strides though that he has, has to take like one slide and then he's at the basket already contesting a shot. It's super useful. So uh, I will bring up like one number. So he contested 15 shots in that game. Uh, mostly the average center contests like eight shots per 36 minutes. Towns played 38 minutes in this game. So Towns was incredibly active as a defensive player, and he only allowed five of them to go in. So he allowed a 33% field goal percentage against, which is obviously very, very good. Um, Most centers, I want to say like the best centers average something like, you know, maybe 45 to 50 in terms of rate against, uh, especially because they get a lot of shots at the basket against them. So if Towns is going to be able to not even do that because that's just like outlier level defensive game, like that was just a very good defensive game. If he's even able to be an above average defensive player, it just like totally changes the way Minnesota can build. Yeah. And again, I got to watch this game to get more context. It's good. He contested that many. I, I think that probably speaks to the scheme too. Cause like the whole Definitely. goal is to kind of fil- filter guards into like the middle of the paint where he can challenge with his length and stuff. So that's promising. If, if he can really, if they can make defensive improvements, this team is kind of dangerous. I mean, not in like the playoffs or anything, but to potentially make the eight spot. If, things break right for them and a lot has to break right for them because the West is so stacked. Like, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. I feel pretty good about that, but it's hard to really bet against towns because he's one of, you know, the 10, 11 best players in the league. All right. I want to talk about the great Cleveland point guard experiment. Um, I'm intrigued. Shout out to the starting backcourt of Sexland as the chase down podcast <laughs> boys, obviously so eloquently decided to name it. Uh, Colin Sexton and Darius Garland started together. They basically played together too. Like, it's not like they really staggered them. Like for the most part, they went with just like a second unit of, uh, Jordan Clarkson and Matthew Della Vadova in this game, which was very weird. Uh, Colin Sexton and Darius Garland played 30 minutes together. Uh, <laughs> it's just a very weird decision to me. It's all, it's all a very strange move to, decide to play these guys together to draft them together. I mean, I get the, I get the argument that on some level, you just want to draft best player available. The guy that has the most upside to be a star and then deal with the aftershocks afterward. Right. I don't know though. I mean, it's, these are two guys that can't play together. I don't think like, I, I just don't see a world where it works because they're too similar. They have two similar weaknesses. They have very similar strengths. Like, there's just no complementary skills within each other there. I genuinely agree. I think my biggest issue is if, if they're not going to stagger them. I think you have to stagger them. Like, if they start together, fine. But, like, if they're just going to have all their minutes aligned with each other, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Because what you're still no, trying to do is develop both of them on the ball. No duo played more minutes for the Cavaliers together than Colin Sexton and Darius Garland. They played 30 minutes together uh, in their first game. That is... Honestly, kind of malpractice to me in terms of coaching. Yes, no, I, I definitely agree. That's my issue with the entire thing. Like, I'm not huge on Sexton. I don't think he's very good. So, like, I, I'm, I'm all for drafting best player available. And if you think Garland's going to be that good, then do that. I have no issue with that thought process. I have an issue with not staggering them and not at least trying to develop them and putting them in some positions to succeed as lead ball handler kind of initiator types. So if you're just going to play them together all of the time, 
I, I don't really get the concept here because long term defensively, that's going to be a pretty big issue. Um, but again, like you have two top eight picks. Maybe they see this as their I mean, obviously, they see this to some extent as their backcourt of the future. I never really thought it would work, but you at least have to put them in better positions to succeed. Stagger them, give them both on ball reps, even though to me, Sexton, what do you think about his vision? Did he show anything? Because this is another one I only saw Garland's highlights of so far. Like, what do you think? Is there been any developments with Sexton's vision playmaking for others, etc.? First and foremost, I just have to say, how dare you uh, with Colin? Colin is a saint. <laughs> Uh, how dare you? I love ever... Colin. I just don't love Colin the player. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't really see much there in terms of uh, some sort of incredible vision or anything like that. Uh, to me, this was a pretty stagnant offense that was just, it wasn't like they were taking turns necessarily, but like it was a lot of like dragon then like try and kick out or like, you know, play play pick and roll, try and kick out, then just like restart. Like it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of flow to the offense in any way, shape or form, which is kind of scary when your coach that you just hired is John Beeline and you're hoping to get some sort of incredible offensive scheme from Beeline. Yeah, no, and that's kind of what I picked up on in the preseason. I think that Beeline's still going to be good for these guys developmentally long-term, but they all play, none of these guys really play like they're five-on-five players, at least the rookies. Yeah, I mean, Garland's the easiest fit just because he can actually play some two-man basketball, and that's what a lot of what they were doing in the preseason. It was very simplified as far as reads. You were either hitting a dive man, you were taking a pull-up, or you were kicking it out. There wasn't a ton of fluidity to the offense, but I think that's partially to do with their personnel. Like, Sexton is not, like, a five-on-five player right now. Neither is Kevin Porter. Like, Kevin Porter's like, I'm going to break you down off the dribble and take a step back. And that's what he did last night. I watched his highlights 0 for 6. He'll be fine. He had a couple of really nice dribble moves. But he's not someone who you're going to, like, run. He doesn't know how to run an offense right now or, like, run in an offense. You know what I mean? So I think Beeline's kind of constricted with what he can do. I just kind of hope that they ultimately figure it out. Because I, I do think Sexton's going to have to be more of, like, a two-guard and, and, of course, that triggers defensive concerns with this pairing. I, I don't know. This is one of those cases where I get their logic and their approach in drafting Garland, but they, they probably have to do a better job of at least staggering these guys. See, but it's weird because I almost think that the – it's hard because I think that Colin is probably the better option to play off the ball because he's a better shooter off the catch, Right. The problem is that if you play him off the ball, you're getting diminishing returns in terms of his ability to knock down shots off the catch from like, or off the dribble from like 30 feet. And he's a better passer than Colin. Like, I don't think he's a good passer, but he's a better passer than Colin is. So I don't think there's a great answer to any of this shit. Like, I'm oh, just going to be real about it. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't see it when it comes to this. Uh, I just wrote about it today and like, I watched their game and like I had to write about them for the prospect project. And I was like, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> like there's just, I don't get it. No. And I'm, I am a hundred percent with you on that. I I'm very, very skeptical. I'm just kind of speaking more to the thought process than the approach. Like if we're going to do a do over of the draft in 2018, they take Shea Alexander pretty easily. Right. I mean, there's no second. Oh yeah. That. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but they didn't do that. Like I'm not, I'm not dead on 
on Colin yet. Like, I think he's going to be an NBA player for a decade. Whether or not he is a starting caliber lead guard is going to depend a lot on if his vision can improve and if his basketball IQ can improve. He just misses so many reads now that it's really hard to run an efficient offense. But, like, he can score and get separation. And, like, he is a good shooter now. Like, I I don't really think I have any questions about that fact. Like, he can shoot the ball off the dribble. So, and, like, he draws fouls, too. Like, he's... He's going to be a good scorer. It's just whether or not he's a sixth man or if he can develop into like an actual starter. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. You described it really well. Um, the problem is, like you said, you're still balancing that with Garland. You have to give him reps on the ball because he actually shows. I'm not a huge fan of Gar- Garland's passing, never have been, but he at least shows foundational vision. He's ahead of Sexton there. So if you're looking yeah. at a guy who create for himself and create for others, that's Garland. But if you push Sexton off the ball, I mean, you're going to have to have some kind of offense where it's like Portland, where you give him a lot of like McCollum-esque reps on the ball. So you just have to balance it that way. I think that's how they have to look at it. Maybe that's how they are looking at it. But I think foundationally, you have to at least stagger these guys some. That doesn't make any sense not to. So uh, let's talk about the other side there. Markel Fultz uh, was in this game. He scored 12 points. I think he had six rebounds. Like he was a very useful NBA player. For the first time, I think realistically that we've seen that on a floor. I know he had the triple-double game, but like this felt a little bit different and a little bit more maybe projectable long-term. I mean, what did you think of Markel? I think anytime he does something, there's going to be like mass hysteria on both sides just because he's become such a divisive player. Just because, you know, number one prospect from almost all of us and then something completely unprecedented happens. This is kind of the response that he elicits. Anytime he has like great highlights, they're all over the place. Anytime he misses a, a three really bad like he did in this game, it's all over the place. What I was most impressed with is his ability to still get to spots. And he's such a his dribbling coordination, like the way he moves is just so different than almost anybody stylistically, how he gets to spots like spin moves. Like he had one like right to left spin where that was like prospect Markel. It was great to see. And, you know, some of his reads were pretty piss poor. Honestly, he made some bad passes, but he at least showed me that he could be a functioning backup point guard. And that's kind of a huge win. I mean, at this point, like you, you don't want to get your hopes up too much. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do is suppress mine just because I like Markel so much. But he at least I think for the magic, they needed some depth. They need someone to fill this role. I'm not a huge Michael Carter Williams guy. So folks can kind of come in and give them a little bit of a spark, um, be able to get to spots, hit some mid range pull ups. He's not going to be able to hit pull up threes, I don't think, in the foreseeable future. Uh, at least there's a role for him. And that's something that. You know, it's not great for where he was drafted, but just to be an NBA player at this point and, and have some maybe positive value at times would be a big win. I would love it if Markel Fultz becomes like a Sean Livingston-esque backup point guard. Like that would be an exceptional outcome at this stage, given where we've been. Um, I don't mean that to be like, you know, overly negative. I don't mean that to be, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm just like trying to look at this realistically. I would be ecstatic if that was the result anything above that is gravy like that'd be amazing if he can become a starter i don't think we've seen enough to really think that that is projectable at this stage but hey we'll see yeah that's where i'm at too i'm just happy for him that he's being able to produce on the floor and i have kind of a hot take I think that if this never happened to Markel, it's not really a hot take, but if this whole shooting thing never happened, just seeing how his defense has been a little bit better than expected, to see how easily he can just get from spots and, and like use his length, his strength, and like all his dribble moves, it's, he's very slippery with the ball. I think he would be, still be the best player in this class in 2017 after watching the rest of these guys. I, I just think he would be, but it's obviously not the case because his, the jumper isn't there. Yeah, the, the jumper is a real, real problem. Um, yeah. 
There's just not really another way to say this. It's just a significant issue. Um, I hope it gets fixed, but this was a guy like who the whole, the whole point of Markel Fultz was that he was a three level scorer with like incredible uh, pace with the ability to shift in, change directions with these and finish at the basket, like above the rim. But the biggest and the glue that held it together was the fact that he could shoot and score from all three levels. Exactly right. I mean, the threat of his shot opened up the rest of his game. I, I just been a little bit more impressed with the rest of his game. That's what I'll say and end it with. It's just some things have translated better than I thought, including the defense and just like how his length extension and all of that around the rim. A lot of that was obvious. I, it's just good to see that the rest of his game is there to an extent, even though he's not like a high level decision maker. I just it, it's just kind of upsetting at the same time, just because I really like the kid. I loved him as a prospect and uh, I, I'm just pulling for him, man. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, I do just want to point out as well, uh, just to close the loop on Sexton and Garland, you know, we talk about defense a lot and obviously the uh, Cavs only gave up 94 points in that game. Uh, I think that their defensive rating was something like 96, which is really, really good in this day and age. Uh, The Garland-Sexton pairing itself had a defensive rating of 101.6, which was fifth worst. Uh, out of the two-man units that played at least 10 minutes in that game for the Cavaliers. So um, not not super great, to be honest. Uh, I, I thought that it, it just didn't work on any level in game one. And, you know, that that's the... That's been the question of fit the whole way. Yeah, and I don't, I, I don't want to rag too much on the Cavs, but I watched um, the Hornets against the the Bulls, and the Hornets are significantly better than the Cavs to me. And it's just a one game reaction, but just watching them play, watching how much shooting they have on the floor, them move the ball and like pick guys apart, just the, stylistically what they were doing with like PJ as the backup center. I think there's a pre, there's like at least a small gap between the Cavs and the Hornets to me as far as bad teams in the league. I think Borrego is actually a pretty good coach. That's my that's I my take. Um, I think he's actually pretty good. So let's uh, let's move on. I want to talk about Miami. So I wrote about Miami for the Prospect Project yesterday. And the big thing I wrote is like, I don't think there's any team that gets more out of like a zero asset. So like a total no risk, like exhibit 10 guy, two way guy, you know, a, you know, end of the bench guy that you sign. Nobody gets more out of those players developmentally than Miami. I mean, you can look across the league. You've got Tyler Johnson, Hassan Whiteside, Rodney Magruder, Josh Richardson was a second round pick. Like these guys are strewn across the league. And then you look at their team. I mean, they've got Derek Jones Jr. Who was not very good in Phoenix comes here, works on his body and ends up being a very good player for Miami. Uh, you've got Kendrick Nunn who I, I don't like talking about Kendrick Nunn because uh, of the domestic violence history in his past. So yeah. I, I will just know, that he stepped into the starting lineup and was fine. Um, Duncan Robinson looks like a potentially real floor spacer, I think. Chris Silva, like you and I were talking about this beforehand, like Chris Silva, he was a player at South Carolina that was super underrated. I thought he was really, really, really good. You look at his on-off numbers at South Carolina. South Carolina was consistently a dreadfully bad team with him off the floor and was like a plus nine with him on the floor. Um, But he was never a guy that was like super explosive. He was 
like a 6'10 center with a 6'11 wingspan who like coach, like evaluators that had him in the last few years uh, to their uh, pre-draft workouts were like, this guy is one of the strongest guys we've had in. He was more of just like a guy who held his ground really easily. And those guys are valuable, but he looks explosive now. Like he actually looks like a really good athlete in a way that he didn't always look like at South Carolina. It's just that this strength and conditioning program in Miami, I think is so impressive and it just gets the absolute most out of these players in every way. Yeah, which is really interesting. Not the same kind of player necessarily, but Casey Alcala going there. He's more, he's skinnier. He's not like that big build that they usually look for. He's not like Bam or Justice or, or Silva, but how they can improve him athletically um, as far as movement skills and everything would be really interesting. Give him some explosion, but I, I definitely agree. It seems like this team kind of has an MO, what, what they look for as far as developmentally. We've seen that in the past. Who's the kid out of Georgia that was on here that was kind of a thicker build? I can't remember what his name is. Um, they, they cut him recently, but just they have like a body type that they look for and they develop like explosion. They kind of teach these guys how to play in their scheme. Their athleticism was so impressive in this game. I mean, it was a really high paced game. Both teams got up and down. Like they were just everybody seems like they were blocking shots like Bam was everywhere. Silva came in was like a huge energy in Jackson flying blocking shots. I think he had three blocks in 11 minutes. So I was really impressed with this team overall. Winslow has been he's really developed. I think Winslow kind of doesn't get enough credit for some of the developments he's made. Like He was shooting some off the dribble in this game. Um, I'm a big fan of what Miami does. I think Spolstra is one of the five best coaches in the league, and I think their development staff is really good. Yeah, like we should talk about, you know, one thing you brought up, I want to give you the floor to say it, is just like how athletic these guys are. Um, This team, I agree with you. They are, to me, like I don't see a team that is more athletic than Miami right now. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like Derek Jones's dunk, they used him as the role man. I love when teams do this with guys who can't shoot, really. I mean, Jones is kind of a dicey shooter. But put him in as a role man, have him dive, and like, I can't, who did he dunk on? I think it was Valanchunas or something, but it was just absolutely ridiculous. Like, the the bounce he got, and just the speed of this team, getting up and down, catching alley-oops in transition, blocking shots in transition. It's not just, like, the, the explosion. It's like the speed and explosion with this team it just really stands out with some of these bigger bodies that can move to the level that they are and they had you know Whiteside in the past who has the physical tools of course he's huge with the length but not like the most he's not a speed demon he's not like incredibly explosive he's not going to get up and down like a bam so I think just the general team speed with this club even with someone like Myers Leonard on the floor like Tyler Hero's more athletic than he gets credit for as far as speed not like the super powerful explosive leaper Kendrick Nunn's a pretty damn good athlete I mean it's he's much more athletic than I thought he was going to be when I watched him in Oakland he was more of like a movement shooter he can do some on the ball as well so I just even comparatively to Memphis who has guys like Brandon Clark who's a world-class athlete um, but just doesn't have that kind of powerful frame they really stood out even like contesting Moran at times who had like a pretty decent game he was okay he was up and down a little bit as expected but Miami's athleticism is just legit yeah totally agree um I gave a bold prediction on the last podcast that they would win 48 games and be a top four seed in the east because I am a crazy person I don't feel that (laughs) I don't feel like it's that wild after watching them the first game like I think they're going to be really good and that was without Jimmy Butler oh yeah and that's obviously an enormous part of this. I had them as a locked-in playoff. I, I didn't do a seed and stuff, but I, I would be stunned if they didn't make the playoffs. That means something yeah. really went wrong. Yeah, I think they're going to be really good. I actually think they're going to be really good this year. Um, on the other side, Ja Morant. I will just give you the floor to talk about Ja. I mean, what did you see from his first game? What did you see from uh, the Memphis Grizzlies' first game? Because God knows they are your team. Uh, <laughs> I, I do just want to point out one thing that is just 
going to bring warmth to your heart. So the Grizzlies had, uh, they played 55 different combinations of two player lineups, right? So like, you know, a pairing of two guys. So like Dylan Brooks and Brandon Clark being on the floor at the same time, right? There were 55 combinations of two man lineups for the Grizzlies. Brandon Clark was in the, uh, in those, in the five best two man combinations for the Memphis Grizzlies. (laughs) In game one, uh, he was really good with Dylan Brooks, with Marco Gooderich, uh, with Jones, with Anderson and with Jaron. So like it, it is unsurprising that Brandon Clark is already making an impact in Memphis. That's what he does, man. He's a winning impact basketball player. Um, but yeah, I think with I'll start with Morant. Uh, I was impressed. I, I think that his obviously his agility and his ball handling, that's always going to get pubbed. Some of the passes, he's got he's got to make better decisions at times. He's got to realize that these windows are smaller in the NBA. Even with bigger spaces, some of the pocket passes, you just have to be so precise in how you throw them accurately. And I think he'll pick up on that. I was kind of impressed with his ability to be aggressive and like absorb contact around the rim. I thought he got pinballed a little bit in preseason when he played against NBA teams, just getting like hit and knocked to the side. That happened a little bit in this game. But he had one really, really nice finish over Bam. He just went right into Bam's chest at full speed and then finished over the top. I was really impressed with that. Had one incredible finish where it was like an up and under. He kind of released it like almost when he hit the floor. The top of the glass bounced in. So I thought he did some damage, you know, attacking the rim. Two of his finishes were off ball, which is something that he's actually pretty good at with those back cuts. We saw that a lot at Murray State where he just kind of line you up and then sell really hard to the rim. can catch alley-oops and like reverse in the air. So that stuff was good. Defensively, I mean, he's going to struggle. And this is a really bad matchup for him because everybody on Miami can put their shoulder down. Justice Winslow was just knocking the shit out of Morant on drives. Like he was just knocking back five feet every time. And there's just nothing Morant could do. I was impressed that he maintained his balance, frankly, at times. So that's going to be a work in progress. But Morant's ability to push the ball in transition, and he struggled with foul trouble. That's why he only played 25 minutes. Was, he kind of had some bad technique fouls getting around screens and stuff like that. But I over, I think there was a little bit of pushback to him in, in game one. I actually thought he was a little bit more impressive than his stat line would indicate. Yeah, I, I'm not real worried. Like, it was just like a fine debut for a rookie point guard. You know, it, it, like... I'm not going to get worried about the lack of defense just because that's just not something I'm going to worry about with like a first game point guard uh, in a really bad matchup. Uh, I am. Yeah. Like it was just whatever. You know what I mean? Like he was fine. It just was not a, I I am, I am unconcerned still at this stage about (laughs) John Morant. Like I think he's going to be a okay when all of this ends up uh, coming to pass. Yeah, let me just say one more thing about him. Just a little bit hesitant with his shot. And it's something I want to see him be a little bit more aggressive. Like in preseason especially, he was getting some under coverage and he was shooting okay against that. Miami went over the screen a fair amount and was kind of like the Florida State approach where they're like, we're just going to push you into the mid-range. He got a pull-up block there. We've talked about all this in the past. So some of the prospect stuff that we talked about with him, you don't change your stripes overnight. It's going to take some acclimation to do that. And Nunn did a pretty good job, I think, navigating screens. I do want to see Morant a little bit more aggressive um, with his three-point shot because teams are going to give him under. They're going to give him that, you know, rookie suspect shooter cushion. I want to see him be aggressive with a shot. Yeah. And, you know, I will just like close by saying that like one of the things that you were a little bit less worried about, worried about than I was, was the turnovers, right? Um, I don't even think it's as simple as these windows close faster in the NBA. I do think he just makes like overly aggressive decisions from time to time. Oh yeah. You do always want your guard to be aggressive, but you need to have some control. And I think that he lacks control maybe 30% of the time right now. (laughs) 
No, I'm 100% with you that I had that concern as well. I just, in this specific game, the six turnovers, I, I don't know if all, like, that kind of overstates the impact there. I didn't think his decision-making was absolutely poor. So he made a couple bad reads, but you can expect that with him. Like, he's sure. he's a very splashy, flashy player. Like, that's something people got to get used to is, like, even in preseason, he was doing some things that he was missing windows to, like, kind of sell moves and stuff. And he's very, very like that. So I think that's going to take some time to push that a little bit more out of his game and just try to execute get a little bit better so i did not watch washington dallas so i'm gonna give you the floor to talk about luka Doncic because that is something you wanted to do yeah i just want to make a quick point like his athleticism this is a point that a couple of us made pre-draft like if he just got incrementally better athletically that was going to be huge for him and this is kind of like that low-hanging fruit in the draft argument there was already so such a strong foundation there if he could just get a little bit quicker a little bit better acceleration change directions more dynamically that was going to be huge and that's what we saw in this game um he just ate washington's defenders alive and bonga's not a bad defender he's inexperienced but he can actually move okay and luca was just dusting him he had one crossover that was like incredibly quick twitch um accelerated well out of it he was getting like the shenanigans were much better as far as like getting lower to the ground, getting better burst. He was getting to the rim. I think it was seven of seven at the basket in this game. He was taking guys off the bounce every time. He wasn't just settling for step backs. He looked like a better athlete. And that's terrifying because like the, the, when his three point shot is going like he's basically unguardable now, unless you're like Kawhi or something. And he was even getting the corner on Kawhi in preseason. So just an overall point of this guy got better athletically. I mean, it's not like a crazy difference, but it's a pretty legitimate difference. And you're seeing the returns on that. He looks like to me, I think he's going to be a top 15 player in the NBA this year. I mean, it just I'll, it's Washington. Washington's not good. Thomas Bryant's a bad interior defender, but he looks so much better to me athletically. How was your best friend, Rui? He wasn't bad. I mean, Washington didn't overtask him. That's what I kind of liked. I mean, he had a couple of transition, like pull-up mid-rangers, which got a lot of you know press back and stuff like that. But that's what he does. I mean, he played his game. He wasn't. He didn't really stand out in any capacity. Washington is they're really. It's going to be a tough watch for them this year. I feel. I feel bad for Beal. I mean, how they played this game, like Daylon wasn't guarding Ishmith. He was in the gaps all game. He was just screwing up Beal's driving lanes on dribble handoffs. Luca wasn't guarding Bonga at all. He was just kind of floating in the lane, rebounding. And Beal has his court suppressed so much, and Rui's going to have the same thing. But using him more in like a pick and dive and pick and roll a little bit, having him pop a little bit of isolation play. I think he's going to be fine. The same questions that existed with Rui still exist. Um, it's, it's just kind of a brutal situation a little bit outside of Bryant's ability to space the floor on offense. One game I did watch was Atlanta-Detroit last night. Um, Atlanta is very interesting offensively. Uh, they showcased a lot of the concerns I still maintain defensively. And Trey Young's first half was just the most ridiculous half I've seen anyone play this year so far. Yeah, he he really had it going. I the strength he added, I think 10 pounds of strength. I think you're going to see that better in on his shot this year. I mean, of course, all his most of his power comes via his mechanics and like that one motion release and where he times the ball. But just being able to consistently shoot with greater depth and I, I think the strength is going to help him from a consistency standpoint, but I, I definitely share the same issues with you obviously on defense, but even offensively, man. I get so exhausted watching Trey. Like he was getting pressed coming up the court and then he has to create in like a double high every time like pick and roll, isolate, create everything for teammates. I want to get I want Lloyd Pierce to get him off the ball more. Like run him off some floppy sets. Not a natural relocator. He's not like Steph or anything like that obviously, but you can utilize and leverage his shooting better than they're doing. You need more playmaking. Who's going to run the offense? 
if he does that. I think Herter can do that for stints, and he's obviously not healthy. He came off the bench and only hit a 15-minute um, cap on his night. But, man, it's just you appreciate – I tweeted this. You appreciate how hard it is and how much Trey has to win on the margins for a 6'2 below-the-rim athlete and just how ridiculous what he does really is. It's just exhausting to watch sometimes. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, Evan Turner, theoretically, would be the perfect point guard to run out in those sets, right? Like, you want to get Trey Young off the ball for a minute, run a floppy set. Like, Evan Turner should be able to initiate that, realistically. And I think he can. Like, I actually think that that might not be a disaster. And, like, theoretically, the other guy who could do that is DeAndre Bembry. Like, Bembry used to do stuff like that at St. Joseph's. Like, I mean, look, the NBA is a different level than the Atlantic 10, but... I feel like there might be like something there still dormant that like you could just have him initiate a set like this for Trey. You know what I mean? I think they can handle the passing. At least Turner can. Bembry's a wild decision maker now, man. I agree with you as a prospect. I would have said the same thing, but he makes some some pretty ridiculous decisions. But Turner can pass. I'm just worried about like the shot making element. Like they're n- neither of them are pull up threats. They're not really scoring threats. So I think that kind of hinders Atlanta's offense and you'll yeah, get more coverage on Trey. That's why I like Herter there because he can at least make shots off the dribble and he's a really good passer in my opinion. So I think long term he might be the best um, option there. Turner was actually pretty good in this game. So it was Jabari Parker. He absolutely destroyed oh. Detroit's second unit. <laughs> you, you better believe. You better believe that that's where I was going next. The Jabari Sance is real. The Jabari Sance is here. It's happening. <laughs> you guys better be ready for it. Here, here it is. Because he is going to come off the bench as their sixth man this year. He's going to lead them to the playoffs as the sixth man. It's not going to be Trey. It's going to be the Jabari Parker renaissance, the jabari I don't even believe what I'm saying right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I will say, like, he was impressive off offensively. Like, getting him in, like, role man situations where he's going to the basket and using him more off the ball as a, a play finisher. He's a good athlete, man. He's a really good athlete. He can finish. Like, I think he does give them a, a different dynamic off the bench, but I mean, the defense is just where Atlanta in general goes awry. I think, um, I think probably friend of the podcast, Brad Rowland tweeted yesterday, it was like a two point game that Detroit was winning at halftime and Trey had the most ridiculous first quarter ever. And that's kind of what I think Atlanta's offense or Atlanta overall is going to be this year. Like Trey's going to have to be superhuman on some nights to, to win these games because the defensive infrastructure, like with Len starting center, for example, like Collins, he, he had a couple of nice defensive plays yesterday. I'll give him that. But just I, I'm not a huge fan of this team defensively, obviously. How dare you doubt? How dare how dare you falter in this moment <laughs> of the of the Jabarisance, which remains very real and very uh, now if you if you get Jabari like in very simple situations like you mentioned like as a role man as a pure spot up guy who can attack a closeout like his game actually is a lot easier there because his problem is taking bad mid range jump shots if you tell him do not take these shots just take threes and just be like a simple offensive creator he can actually do that stuff oh yeah no he's he's really good if you get him in space and he attacks the rim and he has any kind of gap to attack like he's he's effective there as long as he doesn't have to make decisions or he has to again like you said take pull-up jump shots obviously the real issue with him is defensively and my god like i i feel like i realize why i like brandon clark so much it's one specific play that he does um it, it's when you're on the back line when you're on like the baseline and somebody drives at your side and you're not guarding a shooter in the strong side corner and you don't contest the shot i think that irritates me more than anything else that happens on a basketball court and clark does that every time i don't know if i've ever seen jabari do that he just kind of stands there and it's like dude like just put your arm up it, it's unbelievable 
Support for the Game Theory Podcast comes from <laughs> Manscaped, who is number one in, and I quote, men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for the family jewels. Look, I use the Manscaped uh, electric razor for my face. I do not use it for the family jewels. Uh, it is uh, actually a pretty good electric trimmer. I'm a fan of it. Uh, it really, uh, it has the settings that are really good in terms of being able to get the length that you want. Uh, it's a very, very useful product. I'm a fan of it. Uh, look, you can get 20% off plus free shipping with the code Theory, T-H-E-O-R-Y, at manscaped.com. Always use the right tools for the job. And this is an actual point on the copy. Your balls will thank you. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code theory at manscaped.com. Good old, good old manscaped. I love that read. Uh, let's, uh, <laughs> let's go to our segment on the podcast, the LaMelo ball experience. Uh, you watched the LaMelo ball game this morning, correct? I did. So it was LaMelo ball against RJ Hampton uh, and the New Zealand breakers. LaMelo ball plays for the Illawarra Hawks over in the NBL. Uh, RJ Hampton team, the breakers beat them by infinity points. I lost track. <laughs> by the end of the game. Um, this was, I think, LaMelo Ball's worst game of the season. And this comes to someone who has not been as impressed with him as Cole has been. So I would be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and I'm going to afford them eventually. But I actually want you to talk first about this. I'm very curious on how you analyze this game and why you think it was his worst game. Yeah, so I think that a big problem in this game was uh, the physicality of it. Like, I think that he really wants to play physical. He just can't do it, and I worry about the frame long term. Uh, The jumper and the efficiency still has not come along. This was his sloppiest game in terms of decision-making and passing. Uh, He turned it over four times, and, like, that's something that, hey, look, it's a singular bad game, and I think overall his decision-making and playmaking has been by far his best component uh his best input this year for Illawar and uh, his best input as a draft prospect but uh in this game I thought it was pretty bad to be honest I, I thought that they threw a lot of different stronger bodies at him and he couldn't get the kind of penetration that he really needed to and is used to interesting yeah I thought I mean obviously he didn't he wasn't efficient, right? I thought he missed a lot of pull-ups and the shot that continues to be the biggest issue is the inconsistency, in my opinion, of his base, especially you saw like some more exaggerated sweep and sway. So he kicked his feet forward. You saw some more like set shots. Like it just never looks the same to me. Sometimes he kicks his foot out. Yeah. I I was going to say, like, I don't even know that that's like you saw more of this or you saw more of that. It's just never the same. Like the shot is just the mechanics are maddeningly inconsistent. That's what I'm trying. That's the point I'm trying to make. More of the same is what I'm saying. And not like you're seeing more deviation. It was just more of the same. And that's my biggest problem with him right now. And I think he just saw it more in this game because he missed so many pull-ups specifically. Like he was taking some deeper shots a little bit early in the clock. He did have that step back where he had more of the exaggerated sweep and sway that he made. He had one shot. I didn't. It was another one that didn't count where you saw, again, almost no lift in his shot that he made. I, I like that iteration the best. But but that's my biggest issue with him right now is just the inconsistency of his lower body mechanics. Of course, the, the, we've talked about in the past, the upper body mechanics aren't ideal either, but he's at least made improvements there. Um, in this game, like to me, he, I thought it was fine. Like it, To me, it wasn't his worst game. I've seen him play much worse defensively. I, I thought defensively he was pretty okay. Um, made some good rotations. Reasonable. 
Yeah, I think yeah. that's honestly, I think I do agree with you that this probably was his best defensive game that I've seen. Yeah, it was. I don't know if it was his best. But I've watched how many games of his have you watched so far uh, in the NBL? Probably five. Sounds okay. right. Because what he's probably played six or seven. I've watched most of them. I haven't watched all of them. Got it. Yeah, I, th- I think I've seen. Yeah, I've seen all of them. I think I've seen all seven. So I think this is up there. Maybe like his second or third best defensive game. Who knows? I, I didn't think he was a negative there. I thought he had some nice physicality flashes offensively as far as putting his shoulder down. Um, he had one nice drive where he kicked it out. It should have been an assist. And that's a common theme with LaMelo is like he's a much better passer even than his numbers indicate. He, teammates yeah. are just not making shots. Like they, they're missing layups. He's had some really nice, like that one no-look pass that everybody saw in the first half. Like that was a great pass. Like that anticipation that you just can't teach. The touch on his passes are incredible. So yeah, I, I just thought he didn't make shots in this game, man. Like that's what it came down to me. Like the turnovers, he has not turned the ball over at all this year. I didn't like, I wasn't looking at any of his decisions and we're like that was a bad choice like I, I was like concerned about it necessarily like he got his shot blocked one time when he went for this like left scoop reverse he keeps gathering a little bit farther out on the floor than I'd like I'd like to see him take like another dribble like drop his shoulder and try to create separation that way this finishing game is definitely a work in progress there's no question about that as far as you know can he absorb contact contact balance all of that to me I just nothing really stood out to me that said like this is a bad LaMelo game like a stat line wasn't great but I thought he made some pretty promising plays like who do you think play better in this game rj or lamello oh that's a good question um i would say lamello so would i um and it just has to do with the fact that he is better at basketball than rj like even though i think that he probably made more negative plays than rj bear or uh, rj hampton i'm sorry good lord um even though i thought <laughs> he made more negative plays that like ended possessions, right? Like I thought he took some really bad jumpers in this game and he just didn't That's make fair. pull-ups. And uh, I thought his shot selection was pretty poor. Even the fact that like he's getting those shots, like RJ like just can't really get those shots even and like that's not even uh, like a full-on negative like i think he went what like maybe four of nine five of nine something like that in this game rj's game was like a lot more composed and i think you can maybe make the case that like he was less harmful to his team and thus was like a slightly better player but like in terms of projectability um and just like what prospect would you want to take based off of watching this game uh, despite the fact that LaMelo went like, what was it? Maybe like three of 14 from the field and, um, you know, turned it over four or five times. And like it, just the fact that he was able to do more, like gives me more, uh, just a little bit more confidence in him going forward. Yeah. And I do think LaMelo is... Some of the decisions on shots are definitely fair. Like a, a couple of them, I think probably two shots he shouldn't have taken. He should have looked for a better look for either himself or his teammates. Completely fair. I, I just thought like so, even so here, with all of that. Go ahead. Here, here would be my question to you. We're now at the point where LaMelo is shooting. He has like a 42.9 true shooting percentage this year in the NBL. <laughs> um, at what point do we start going, oh, no, he should not be taking even some of these shots that are open? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair argument. The, the numbers are bad for his shooting. Like He's like 5 of 32 on the year from three. It's just not he's not making shots. But I mean, that's his game, right? I mean, like how many I'm not comparing him to Trey Young because Trey is way more consistent with his mechanics and he was a much better free throw shooter, much more optimism to have in, in Trey's shot overall. But how many people freaked out when he had like that 19 percent November last year? Like a sure. lot of people. And like how, how many people freaked out down the stretch at Oklahoma where he just wasn't making shots? I think sometimes got to wade through these smaller samples. Um, I believe in LaMelo's touch. I've been pretty adamant about that on the podcast. I, I really don't. 
the, the mechanics really frustrate me, but that's who he is as a player. He's going to have to make shots off the dribble. You just keep doing that. Um, you can reel in a little bit of the shot selection, though, 100%. Yeah, I guess that, yeah, the, the mechanics are just what worry me because they've always been this. Like, this is not, like, he has, imp- he's made some mechanical improvements. Like, his hand is a little bit further under the ball now. But the, these are still issues from when he was 15, from when he was 16, from when he was 17, right? Like, th- these still think, these things are still coming up. Uh, and he's never been an efficient shooter and scorer. Like, like that's just like, you can uh, look back through the numbers. Like, he's just never been that. So that, that's where the worry is for me. Like is because everything that he's going to do at the NBA level is going to be predicated off of the shot. I think it's kind of similar to what we talked about. Um, or I talked about this on the podcast I just recorded with Danny LaRue, but like uh, it's kind of the difference between like Tyus and Trey Jones, right? Like Tyus is an effective offensive player because he can shoot because teams have to guard him as a shooter. Trey Jones is not an effective offensive player right now because there's just no reason to guard him out there. Um, I don't think LaMelo is like a total non-shooter in the way that I think Trey Jones might be a total non-shooter, but it completely warps his value offensively if he can't be an efficient scorer for himself. Yeah, and there's no question about that. And I just think I'm still looking at this from a projection standpoint, and Melo has the hardest thing that it is to acquire in that shooting touch. And I'm just going to keep going back to that because I, I care much more about the upside shot at, at being like an impact potential difference maker, even if that's a 10% chance for LaMelo. Like, I'm still going to value that because that's what the draft is all about to me is getting those kinds of players. Like, if you just got on the list of some of these mock drafts, let's say you have LaMelo. Where do you have LaMelo right now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I have to write that this coming week for the first one this year. Um, I would say comfortably, you know, somewhere in the top 10, we'll say. Okay. So, like, my point is just generally, let's say, because you're like, you're not really like super high on Isaiah Stewart. You just think that he's got a projectable NBA game. Am I mistaken? Yeah, like, I think Isaiah Stewart will play in the NBA for a decade. Um, Will he be a starter? I think yes, but like, you could make a case to me that I wouldn't argue with that says no. And would you agree with the fact that LaMelo Ball has a higher upside for the modern game in relative to winning? No question. No question. Okay. Uh, in, in relative to winning? Yeah, still yes. no question, I think. Yeah. Like, there, there okay. are some parts of Melo's game that aren't really winning parts, right? Like, we still do have questions about the defense, and his efficiency is kind of a nightmare right now. But in general, if you think he can get past the efficiency questions, then yes, I agree. With and you think that he at least has the foundation. There are foundational elements to his game where he could potentially be a quote unquote, some kind of a difference maker. Yes. Maybe. Yes, I do. Yes. Okay. I would say full stop. Yes. To that. So, so that's really all I care about as far as from an analysis standpoint. Like, of course, we're, we're in the business of projecting how likely is that that he gets there? Like, what does he have to do? But to me, draft analysis sometimes is so overly reductive. You're looking at a specific game and saying, what is he good at? What did he do right in that game? But really, it's about projection. It's what do you think is going to work? How can he improve that to get to the level that is possible? What, what is the foundation? What are you working with? What can he become? And I think that's why... You know, it's hard for me to see LaMelo outside, just based on what I've seen of this class, which is a fair amount at this point, how he could be outside the top five if your modus operandi is basically like, I want potentially to make an impact players. It's a good question. I think every team is going to operate differently in that regard. Um, yeah. In regard, like, I think a lot of it just depends on what your roster construction is, right? Like if you're the, if you're the Clippers and you have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, you probably want to take guys like Fiondu Cobb and Gelly um, and Terrence Mann, 
right? That can come in and potentially fill a role and not just fill a role, but fill it relatively quickly while you're within this window, right? Um, and give you cheap production. Uh, you probably don't want to take like some massive upside swing on, you know, a player like a Mitchell Robinson, right? Um, at the top of the draft, it gets trickier because a full scale bust can lose you your job. Um, whenever you're evaluating. And I think that that's like a real, uh, that's like a real thing that evaluate you know, like general managers have to consider. Yeah. The real life implications for sure. As far as like making decisions at the top, I still don't believe in that philosophically. Like, and I disagree. I would take, you know, a guy like Mitchell Robinson over who has potential difference making upside. Even if I am a competitive team, I'm just taking the best talent. It depends on what your evaluation of Mitchell is. Obviously like you were a little bit lower. Right. I was kind of in the middle. I mean, like to Let's be honest, I would have had Mitchell's a bad example. So I would have had <laughs> Mitchell ahead of, Fiondu Cabangale in terms of a grade. But like, I just mean that kind of archetype of player, right? Okay. Yeah, and I guess for me, this is why so much of the draft is philosophical, but I look at how these players translate. And even if, say, this is my approach to De'Aaron Fox. I thought he was risky as hell. But the reward, if he works, it's it changes your franchise, right? And I think that is what the draft is about. Just watching this play out, like how many difference makers, even from 2018, which is one of the best drafts I've ever seen. Like how many real difference makers that really move the needle for you? It's, it's really hard to get those guys. I mean, like, here's a question. Like how many big guys do you think are difference makers? Like, is it three? Is it like Jokic, Towns, and Embiid, basically? I mean, right now, I would say if you want to include Draymond in that conversation, I, I absolutely think Draymond's a difference maker. In the right setting, especially. Um, I'm trying to think of another. Like Al Horford? Like, would that be like a difference maker for you? Yes. As far as, well, I mean, he's like, he is, if you also have infrastructure around him, right? He's not a one, clearly. He's more of like a three on a really competitive team, just based on his role. I get what you're getting at with bigs, though, in general. Is CJ McCollum a difference maker for you? No. So CJ McCollum is, I mean, I don't know if he's going to make an all, he's probably the best player in the NBA to have not made an all-star game. Like something along those lines. Like, is Mike Conley a difference maker for you? Like the the long time, like you know, best player to not make an All Star game. No, he's an incredible basketball player, but I wouldn't qualify him as a difference maker. And I think this is what this discussion, this is the worthwhile part and point of this is like how few guys really do move the needle. Maybe five or six. Maybe right now in the league, there's so it's like deep in the top half. So maybe you say ten. It's so you have to have one of those guys, basically. Maybe you have like three guys from 11 to 20 in the league. That's possible, too. That's another way to win. And if that's your objective, it's just really hard to get those guys. So even if I think LaMelo Ball has a 5% chance to become that, and maybe that's even too high, I don't know. Like, that's why I would prioritize them in the draft, just because you need those guys ultimately to do anything if you're talking about winning a championship. Man, that is such a high risk, high rewards strategy. I do love it. Like part of me loves it. (laughs) Um, What's the down? I mean, from a job security point, you hit the nail on the head as far as realistically, if you're a GM and you have so much outside pressure. Yeah. I mean, do you really want to swing for the fences? It's easy for me to say in my seat in my house, you know what I mean? But I do think like, what's the, what's the downside risk if you keep your job? Well, there's, there's that. And there's the fact that you have to go into your owner and be like, Hey, yeah, there's a chance LaMelo ball, like fucking totally busts, but we think there's a 5% chance he's like one of the 10 best players in the NBA. So we should take him <laughs> like that's hard. I mean, obviously, like if you're going to go in and make a case for doing it right. You're going to do it differently than that. But it's hard. <laughs> like it's hard to sell that in ownership as well, because owners are involved in these decisions with top five picks. They just are like there's not oh, a yeah, there's just not like a way around it 
to say otherwise. Yeah, and when I talk about the draft, I, I do, I, I, sometimes it's way too abstract. A lot of times I'm talking about in the media and how we do big boards, how we have philosophies and stuff like that. Like, there are real-life pressures to actually running a team pretty clearly, but even if, I, I don't think Lamelo even has, like, a very high bust percentage. I think it's, like, I think it's pretty low. The, the, the odds that he becomes a rotation player in the NBA, to me, are just pretty high, frankly. Like, his for how, his instincts is passing, his team defense has been pretty good to me, so I, I just think he's, a, he's an NBA player. So if that's your foundation and the upside, maybe it's five to ten percent chance he becomes that player. That to me is what the draft is about. Yeah. All right. Let's uh let's move on. I think we've gotten we've gone far enough down the rabbit hole. It's an interesting conversation for sure. Um, but let's go to extensions because I think that it kind of dovetails nicely with these conversations because now we're outlaying actual money to people that teams are hoping either are difference makers in the case of one guy, unquestionably, I think in this uh, extension group uh, or guys that they're just like hoping and praying will become difference makers, which uh, becomes a lot trickier, I think to even project. So let's talk first about Pascal Siakam. Siakam four years, 130 million, geez, 130 million. Um, has language where if he makes all NBA this year, he is going to get the super max. What was your reaction to this? I mean, I thought this was a great deal for Toronto. I mean, like I, I, I think Siakam. I don't know how you want to qualify difference maker. I think he can be. We've already seen him be <laughs> the second best player on a title team. He's very, very good, and he still, I think, has a little bit of upside left. Just with how coordinated he is as a ball handler. So the number. I always expected it to be a max. I thought this is one of the guys we talked about this in the extensions before this all happened. This was the guy that we were like, this guy's a max guy. And, you know, the fifth year, I think you can you can argue semantics with this contract and saying, can Siakam negotiate a fifth year player option? Potentially, you can get down to that. I think the relationship here with Masai played a role and the fifth year max. It's a little bit of a carrot. You know, second team, all NBA gets 28 percent. First team, all NBA, 29%. If he wins the MVP, it's 30%. Pretty low percentage chance for the MVP, of course. But if he has the kind of difference-making upside that is conceivably possible, um, maybe he gets that 28%. So he, he's this was a great deal for me. So say you're Pascal Siakam's agent in this circumstance. It is uh, Tom, Todd Ramazar, I believe it is. Um, and you're Todd. Pascal is 25 years old right now, turns 26 at the end of this regular season. Would you have rather had the fifth year or would you rather have the ability to try and get back into the market? I actually think this is a really difficult call. Well, I mean, if you have the the fifth year player, if it's a player option, of course, you're good. That's what you want. But if it's a fifth year guaranteed, is that what your question is? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> uh, that 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 one would take a lot of discussion. Like, I really would have to know like what Siakam really wants. Like, that's I think that's comes up to him. Like, what does he favor in this? Because it is a really close call. Yeah, I agree. Um, I do think Pascal is going to be like a uh, borderline All NBA guy this year. Like, I think he's just really good. Uh, he is. He was a monster in opening night against uh, New Orleans. He got wherever he wanted, all over the court, all the time. Was super energetic on the glass. Uh, if you told me he averages twenty four and ten this year, I think that is like a hundred percent in the ballpark. Yeah, I, I love him as a player, and he just his game. I, I don't know how much you can really take it and apply it to other prospects because he is so unique. But his game in general just kind of opened my eyes to a couple things, and just like really quickly, I made a. a, a post about this yesterday no, kind I, of... I think he's like really important as a developmental player in the construct of the nba so i yeah i think this is important to talk about 
Yeah, I just think his baseline coordination of what he was as a prospect, the length extension and just the ability to dribble in face-up situations and having the physical tools advantage over almost everybody that's a four. Like, he just ate Tobias Harris alive in the playoffs last year. Tobias Harris is 6'8". Like, and just having that extension advantage, the dribbling capacity, just the improvement that he's made there. And, of course, Siakam has an incredible work ethic, so motor and all of that factors in playing his ass off. But for me, it's just looking at some of these guys that we associate with less offensive upside in the draft. What do we view offensive upside as? Usually like initiator types. So point guards, guys who can really shoot off the dribble, like a Durant, a Kawhi Leonard, get to spots. And we're looking for, when we're talking about getting to the rim, usually we're talking about in the framework of like blowing by guys, having this dynamic burst, having this dynamic explosion. Like Siakam wasn't really either one of those two things as a prospect. I've watched his film back. Like he was really coordinated, but he wasn't like a crazy leaper. You know, it wasn't like I, that kind of one. Good. Yeah, I was going to say, I actually thought he was like kind of robotic to be honest, when I watched him. Like, he had the ability to control where his body was, but in terms of, like, his actual moves and, like, when he was trying to execute, like, a dribble with a spin back or, like, a spin back, I thought it was a little bit robotic. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I haven't watched every single move of his, but I've seen some, you know, coordinated displays in the open court, but you really didn't see anything to, like, a super, super high-level, convincing level, especially athletically for me. He relied a lot on his length. And I just think that how we think about finishing, like Jaron Jackson's another example of this different position. He's going to be more of a five, but like a guy who can really handle the basketball in face up situations. Like if you watch him against Miami, he had like five takes to the rim where he was just incredibly coordinated with his steps. He can cross you up and finish with length extension. Those kinds of players that just can't blow by you like Marvin Bagley, it just blows by you in straight lines and he is incredibly explosive. He's got great strides. Like I think that that is more recognizable for scouts and it's more traditional for how we look at players develop. And I think there's some other cases like Shea Alexander. He's more of a guard, but how unique he is as far as his stride length and his. uh, Did you see him finish around Gobert and just like literally wrap his arms around him? I I don't think I've ever seen a guard do that. And like there's just different ways to win. And I think looking at these guys who have, you know, foundational coordination that have this really long arms that can extend with either hand and have touch. And I think that that's why they've overachieved and kind of outperformed some of our evaluations on them is because there are unique ways to score that are harder to identify and we don't commonly associate with high upside as, you know, NBA scores. Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely right. I do think that we often, I mean, it goes back to what we talk about all the time where there are so many uh, different tools that go into athleticism than just explosiveness, right? Um, I, I think you and I talk more about strength and body control than seemingly anyone that I talk to about the NBA. Like this is just like, this is stuff that is important to us. I mean, we, uh, we've been talking about this for years now. And I think that we are starting to see teams value it a little bit more, like taking a Jaron Jackson at number four, thinking that, you know, his offensive upside can maybe be a little bit greater than as a spot up guy, because we've seen him handle the ball in controlled settings before. Like, I think that, I like to think that NBA teams are getting smarter about this. Yeah, and I think even for me, like, I was really high on Jaron's handle. Like, I was talking about that on the podcast earlier that year. Like, I I thought he did a better handle than Marvin Bagley, and that was a very, that was like a hot take at that time. But, like, I didn't give Jaron nearly enough credit for his one-on-one ISO ability. It was more like, yeah, he can attack a closeout. Like, this is like, like, I didn't think he was 3 and D. That was the common association with Jaron. was like, oh, he's 3 and D. But if you can dribble the ball like him and you have that kind of face-up coordination, you're not 3 and D. Like, Danny Green's 3 and D. He can't do anything off the dribble. He's an incredible shooter when he has his feet set, leaning forward and that. But, like, how we define players, I think, limits some of the upside appeal that exists that we just kind of suppress because of how we label a guy, if that makes sense. 
No, I think that's definitely uh, an interesting point. Um, yeah, Siakam, I think this is a good deal. Like, let's just like yes. leave it at that. I think there's not really another sorry, way. To sorry go for the it. aside. <laughs> no, I think it's an interesting aside because again, I think that Siakam is a genuinely important player. Like we saw Sekou Dumbuya get drafted. Like Sekou to me is like kind of a Pascal starter kit in a lot of ways, just with the way he attacks smoothly in uh, transition, but is not necessarily like the most wildly explosive athlete in the world. It is a lot more coordination based stuff. Yes. And that, I definitely considered that in the draft pro- uh, process. I don't think he could ever get as low as Siakam can. Siakam can really bend. I think we even talked about this on the podcast, frankly, but like, that's how you have to look at it. And I think even Jackson Hayes has some untapped, like, face up upside like he can kind of coordinated dribble in bigger spots against fives i think that that might actually be a thing i'm not sure about that yet but he has the kind of foundational coordination that might amount to that um down the road all right let's uh oh boy this one <laughs> this one. Oh boy jalen brown uh four years it was announced as 115 million it has since been uh stated their incentives in this deal uh, it's four years 103 million guaranteed uh is it four years 107 in terms of likely incentives and then four years 115 in terms of unlikely exactly right so 1 million annual incentives for a combination of three things like playing 65 plus games in the regular season the team winning 49 games and then getting to the second round of the playoffs so that takes you to 107 which is likely because that happened last year and then you have the 2 million annual unlikely for you know all NBA teams MVP defensive player of the year stuff that I don't know how they attributed that there I'm not sure if he has to hit I'm assuming he just has to hit one because there's such high thresholds all right so you and I are both going to be surprised about this no question Uh, I think that when we did our projection podcast we said that we figured Boston's number would be four maybe 85 maybe 490 if they just really wanted to get a deal done anything more than that they'd probably just let it go to the market um we figured that Jalen's number would be higher than that and that these two uh, parties would just go to the market next year. Jalen would be a restricted free agent. They would be likely to match the deal. So they, what they're saying here is that they believe in Jalen to the extent that they think it's worth paying a premium to make sure that they can get him for four years because the risk here is that he goes to restricted free agency and signs like a three year deal with a third year player option, right? Uh, for like 385 or something like that, 380, whatever the number would be. Um, to me, I don't think Boston gets enough back when factoring in the certainty. Like, I just don't think that I care enough about the certainty of this deal because Jalen, these are going to be his age, what, 23 through 20 or no, 24 through 27 years. So like, there's no guarantee that these are his prime years, even that they're getting under contract. Um, I, I don't love this deal for Boston. I, I just, don't love it. And I think that you're going to go into why you don't love it, uh, mostly based around his actual game. Like the factors I'm talking about are more just like from a negotiation perspective and from like a development cycle perspective. I'm sure that you're going to talk about why uh, you don't like it because you are just not a fan of Jalen. Yeah, I mean, I like Jalen at the right contract figure. We talked about that. I'm just really surprised. First of all, I'm just surprised this got done. This is one of the the extensions that I did not expect to get done because of the divide in what I anticipated to be the sides here as far as Jalen 
commanding close to the max, which he got. I think if he hits all of his, all of his um, bonuses, which he probably won't do, he's about $14 million short of what he could have gotten as a max guy, assuming $116 million cap next year. So a little bit of a discount, uh, but closer to that end of the max spectrum than I expected. I expected, like, I would be fine with Jalen at like 18 to $20 because I'm trying to create some surplus value especially for trade. I think just being very upfront about this, I think that Jalen's biggest asset to the Celtics was his trade value, um, especially this season, getting him to a team that could have his rights and, and moving him for like a Bradley Beal. I think when Beal ex- signed that extension, maybe that pushed Boston in this direction. I have no inside information on that. And most teams seem to think that Beal wasn't available. I'm just saying that that kind of trade would be Beal's primary value. Now you're paying him a legitimate portion of the cap and I, I just don't know if his game amounts to that. Like, unless you think he still has upside, like as a shot maker, like we've talked, we, we've really outlined this in one of the previous podcasts as far as how I feel about him. And I, I just don't know where, where's the surplus value coming from this contract. I don't really see it to be yeah. honest. Um, I think that in Boston's mind, they would say that the surplus value is coming from cost certainty, maybe. Um, and, and from like, controlling a player or I don't mean this I this is going to sound worse than I mean but like having like player control and like actual roster control over the player now um I think that they very clearly value Jalen more than we do um they have to believe to sign him to this deal you have to believe that he is capable of being honestly I would say an all defense guy like I, I just don't know that he can get to like a level offensively to where he can bring surplus value. Like even if he's averaging 19 points a night on 55 true shooting percentage, that's still not a $25 million a year player offensively. Like you still have to bring very real defensive value. Um, and I don't even know that Jalen gets there in terms of like 19 points a game on 55 true shooting. So like, I'm just kind of stunned by this one a little bit. Like, I think that the number is just very, very high. Uh, It's very, very high. I'm just kind of curious on what Boston was negotiating against. You've kind of outlined the options pretty well as far as as a restricted free agent. Maybe Jalen signs a two plus one, meaning that first year, if Boston matches, Jalen has the right of first refusal on a trade. Like, he can decline a trade, and it gets... there's an issue in second year because, of course, the player option in the third year, they could give him the maximum qualifying offer, but you're not giving Jalen a full five-year max. That was not going to happen. I don't know, man. It's just like, were they negotiating against what they thought the market would be for a big wing, which is one of the most inefficient markets you know, in free agency? I mean, Tobias Harris doesn't count because he was an unrestricted free agent, but second year, second contracts for some of these players, like Harrison Barnes got maxed, Otto Porter got maxed, so maybe they thought that that was the going rate for what Jalen was going to get. I still think we even saw Malcolm Brogdon. I'm not sure if this is going to work in the future and how relatable it is to future events. Malcolm Brogdon fetched a first round pick for, um, you know, when he went to Indiana, Milwaukee got that back. Could they, could Boston have gotten a first round pick back and a sign and trade for Jalen? The worst case scenario, you at least get an asset. I'm not sure if that was possible. I just don't know what the, the risk oh, avoidance I, was. I, I can't imagine a circumstance where they couldn't have gotten a first round pick back in a similar deal to like a Malcolm Brogdon situation. All they have to do is threaten to match, which they've essentially done. They, they, yeah. Like they've just pre-matched a deal by agreeing to this contract now. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think that it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah. Like no, yeah. Is, I, I just don't like, I can make the case for why I think Boston did it. Um, 
I just don't like they basically have to see Jalen as a guy that is going to be a 19 point a game on 55 to 57 true shooting with all defense team characteristics on defense. Right. Like that's that's the only way that you really get surplus value here. Right. I liked how you broke it down because, again, we kind of view this process and you, and you articulate the team side much better than I do and, like, the realities of the market. I, I just don't know how, like, even, like, if he reaches those figures as far as impact on winning, even, like, the best wing defenders that are more tertiary ball handlers. Like, Jalen's more of a space guy. He tacks some closeouts. He can post up so you can't just put a small on him, which is very useful. But, like, some some of the best wing defenders that are more ancillary guys are making, like, less than 14% of the salary cap. And those are great deals on competitive teams like what what is the idea behind Jalen like you have to believe in some kind of like pseudo star upside yeah I get. yeah I guess like you do have to believe he can be a creator maybe uh, I don't see yeah. that personally like uh, the people the people uh you know plural will bring up oh if you look at his numbers and compare them to Kawhi Leonard uh where Kawhi was oh, at this stage like you know they compare very favorably yeah but Jalen's had a lot more opportunity to create offensively than Kawhi did. Um, Kawhi was just, uh, I believe, more efficient, right? Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe he was slightly more efficient. Um, and to be honest, like, you should not be betting on a Kawhi Leonard type of improvement. Like, that is a developmental outlier uh, with the way that he went from being like a secondary piece to a full stop, uh, essentially a lead ball handler now for the Clippers. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was getting at with, like, the shot-making element. Kawhi became one of the best pull-up shooters we've seen. Like, he he can get to his spots whenever he wants, his balance, all of that, his strength is unmatched, and he just yeah, makes everything. That, that's 100% right. Like, the strength, like, Kawhi might be the fucking strongest player in the NBA, like, and he's, like, a six foot eight wing, or six foot seven wing, and he might be the strongest player in the NBA. There's just nobody like that. Yeah, and, like, the, the level that he's reached, like, this whole mid-range argument, I'm not going to go on another side, but it's really stupid because, like, the, the best shooters can shoot from mid-range because they're shooting, like, over 50%. Like, Durant, like, Kawhi can get to that level at times. Like, those guys are such incredible pull-up shooters. They can get to their spots at will. Do you really... Is there even like a 5% chance that Jalen Brown reaches that? Because that's what he's going to have to do. He's, this guy's never been like even a great finisher on the ball. Same with Tatum, by the way. But like, like Brown has never been a distributor for others. So really, you're just banking on this guy being like a go-to scorer? Essentially, I don't I don't know. Yeah. I, and this is just to get the surplus value. Like, I, I don't I don't, yes. I don't see it. Um, this is a weird deal to me. This is a very weird deal to me. I would have rather just gone to the market next year, but we'll see how it goes for Boston. Uh, Buddy Heald, 486 is the guarantee, 494 in achievable incentives, and then 4106 in terms of unlikely incentives. So um, I guess I think this deal's fine. Uh, Who do you think is a better player? Who would you rather have for the next four years, Buddy Heald or Jalen Brown? I think Buddy, just because you know what you're getting. You're getting an elite, a top three shooter in the NBA. And this is a guy who works his ass off. I'm not sure how much more upside there is to glean from Buddy, but with how valuable shooting is, we know Buddy has the the best skill of those two players. I agree with you. I would rather have Buddy Heald, personally. Um, and you're getting him for four to $5 million a year less than Jalen Brown. Uh, the reason that I would rather have buddy is that, you know, you're getting him for his prime years. Now, um, he is now locked in from the time that he's 27 until the time that he's 30. I believe he has a player option on the end of this. Is that right? I have not seen that. I got to verify that. Yeah. Do you want to Google that or should I? Cause I don't want to be wrong. I will. 
I will. You I, keep talking. Yeah, because I think that that's actually like an important part of the valuation, because if you're Buddy and you're getting like a player option on the end of the deal, I think you can actually make a case in his scenario, given the way that you think your game is going to age pretty well, um, that you should be willing to give back some money to get a chance to get that second year or to get that player option and re-enter the market at 30 versus 31. It looks like no player option. It's a straight four years. I'm on early bird rights with Jeff Siegel. He It's declining every year, so it starts about 25.9, goes down to 20 point. 06 in year four no option so it's unrestricted of course after wow. year four so i was wrong um yeah i mean this is a great deal i think this is an awesome deal for the kings uh, i think buddy is going to be a efficient like you know 60 true shooting percentage guy that scores 20 points a game for the next four years realistically yeah, and some of these incentives are just, they're really high. Like, there's, like, two segments. Even the first segment, he has to make, like, 85% of his free throws, average less than two turnovers a game. These are reachable, of course. Leads NBA and made three-pointers and has defensive rating below, like, 110 and a half. And then you get to the really high upper-end ones where the Kings make the playoffs, being named an all-star. Um, Kings make the Western Finals. You, you get the point. And it goes up to the NBA Finals, which is $1 million in, in, in incentives total there. So I, I do like this deal for the Kings. I actually thought Buddy would get more than this. Frankly, I was looking at it like he's going to get – like if he goes to the open market, do you think he gets maxed out next summer considering the free agent class? So here would be my question. You're the Hawks. You have $70 million, and you can try and max out Buddy Heal. Do you do it? Oh, Jesus. I mean, the Hawks are so tough because they just can't defend. So how many guys that are suspect defenders can you put? But Jesus, can you put them on that team with Trey? That'd be incredible. I might do it. Yeah, like I think I would, to be honest. So like it, the Hawks are just the team that like I think of in this scenario because like the Hawks are have their foundational players for the most part and like could really just stand to add and uh, like an unbelievable, you know, really high, high, high end role player uh, to the point where like I think Buddy is like an outside chance to make an all-star game at some point, uh, especially in the Eastern Conference. Like Buddy probably would be an all-star in the Eastern Conference, right? Yeah, probably. I mean, it's the East. I have another. I have another situation for you. Like, what if Dallas could create cap space and put him next to Luca and Porzingis? Like, I, I don't know. I think he might get close to a max. So I, I thought that Sacramento did really well here, considering the circumstance and the fact. I don't want to keep hammering on the Barnes contract, but you are negotiating a little bit against that as well, and what you just gave him and to give Heald what, like $2 million more guaranteed? Um, really, realistically, probably about $12 million more guaranteed. But but that's I think that was really good work by the Kings. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm trying to think of the Mavericks, like, realist. Like, the Mavericks would basically have to find a way to get Tim Hardaway Jr. up out the paint to even have a chance at max cap space. Um, I don't even know that they could do it then, to be honest. I'm trying to – I'm, like, trying to locate the – oh, there's, like, a – I'm pretty sure there's an easy. Is it, aren't the Lakers like an easy answer here? Don't they have max? Don't they have potential like real cap space? I do not know. I'm <laughs> obviously I'm not prepared for uh, cap space questions, but I think you guys, I think the listeners will get the point. Like, oh no, they don't even... because they gave out player options instead of team options. I'm wrong. No, they don't. Um, here's uh, if you're the Knicks, the Knicks definitely have max cap space. Uh, if you're they the Knicks, the team options. Yeah, you probably are willing to do that, right? I mean, would they? I. I think, I mean, Buddy's marketable. You have an easy skill set to sell. Like, it just takes one team. And I think that they probably, there probably would have been that team. And, and of course, you can move contracts around. It's not just the teams that have cap space right now. Right. They can clear cap space. I just think there's going to be a team that would do that. Right. Like, if, you know, it'd be really funny, um, just given the, uh, given the way that the Levine contract, like, played out. If Otto Porter was oh, decide to, like, was to decide to leave, I think that they can get pretty close to max cap space, too. Um, 
if they paired Buddy Heald and Zach Levine, Levine who signed a offer sheet in Sacramento, um, that'd be really funny to me. I'm just saying. Point Le- Point Levine and Wendell Carter would be the hardest working man on the planet on defense, but let's roll it. Yeah, I'm here for it. Um, yeah, I think this is a great deal. Uh, I think that it's a great deal for the Kings. I think Buddy could have gotten more. So, I, I, yeah, I think this is great all around for the Kings. I'm with you. Uh, Demonis Sabonis got 477. He did. Do you have thoughts? <laughs> I think it, so. For your session, four seventy-five. It looks like, or no, Val, you're right. Four seventy-seven guaranteed. It can increase to eighty-five million with incentives. I mean, the whole thing here, right, is you have you have to look at relative to Turner, what Turner got, and what the fit is with him. I don't think it's a crazy number, honestly. I think it's like I think Sabonis is really good. I have questions about his level of play at the highest levels as far as as a defensive player. Can they optimize him as more of a four? Because again, he's not really that. Like if he's going to be the play finisher and Turner's going to be the stretch guy, I think you can probably get the value necessary. It's it's not my favorite deal just from a player archetype standpoint. I, I think Sabonis is deserving of this money though, based on his production and how good of a player he is at what he does well. So if I remember correctly, they cannot trade Demonis Sabonis until next offseason, correct? With Sabonis, well, he'd be poison pill now, right? Because the extension. So you can, but it's just incredibly difficult. Right. Um, so if I was the Pacers, I probably would have moved him like last weekend. I agree. Like there, there was a Sam Amick report that they looked into it. I would have moved him last weekend. Um, the reason that I say that is like I think that you could very easily get a – pretty awesome offer for him uh, for wings that could really help you. Um, I do not believe in the Sabonis Turner pairing personally. Do you? Not really. And I just don't believe in allocating that kind of resources to two bigs on your roster. I don't want to be like super anti big, but I don't want to pay two bigs like $20 million a year, even though I like both players. Yeah. Like uh, in 20, what would it be in? 2022-23, Turner and Sabonis are uh, slotted to make a combined $38 million a year. Uh, and Malcolm Brogdon's $22 million. So Malcolm Brogdon, Miles Turner, Demonis Sabonis slotted to make $60 million a year. It's a lot of money, man. That's a lot of pressure on Oladipo in the future to be the guy. And I, I again, in a, in a vacuum, I don't mind this deal as far as like team fit and what they already have infrastructure wise. I'm not sure I would have done it. And I agree with your take that I would have looked to shop him because while I think this deal is like reasonable. Sabonis is probably one of those guys where it looks better when you trade for him. He's on a drug contract compared to this. Now you're like, oh, he's a big. Like, what, what do we do here? Can we negotiate? You know, you know what I mean? He just looks better on a rookie scale contract than he does when you're paying him potentially over, you know, $20 million a year in aggregate. So if you're Boston, you pretty easily trade like Romeo Langford in a first rounder for Demonis Sabonis, right? You need I a would. center. It's like a perfect fit. And you get a chance last, if you would have done this last weekend, you would have had a chance to sign him um, yep. to this type of extension, which he accepted, right? So I can like, get him on reasonable money. You can get your center of the future. That makes a lot more sense to me than the Pacers doing it. I agree with that because, I mean, in Boston, they can insulate him with their perimeter defenders as far as, like, they have a bunch of wings, and they really, really need the position. I mean, I think the Boston center rotation is one of the worst in the league, maybe alongside Atlanta's or whatnot, but he could do a lot of good there as far as a pick-and-roll partner with Kemba and gives you, like, a competitive edge right now, too. 
And you basically don't have to change the offense from what it was last year because there's a lot of similarity to how Demonis Sabonis and Al Horford operate in dribble handoffs and in uh, just overall screening because he's a really good screener just like Al is. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it takes more than Romeo Langford, right? Like, I'm not saying, like, that's the deal necessarily, but, like, to me, Boston has enough assets to where they could have slightly overpaid for Demonis Sabonis, filled a hole, got a perfect fit for their roster and just kind of made this work. Yeah. hundred percent. I have nothing to add further to this. <laughs> uh, then again, Boston, maybe Boston thinks they can be in the market for like another center and do it cheaper than Sabonis. Uh, I would rather have Sabonis if I was them because I would rather have someone that matches up in terms of my current timeline, which I think is a little bit longer term uh, than this year and next year. But yeah, it's kind of where I'm at. There you go. Um, okay. Uh, I think, think we can go through the or no we want to go to DeJounte next DeJounte Murray gets 464 um this just seems like a good deal for everyone involved because if you're DeJounte you definitely want to try and guarantee yourself some money coming off the knee injury um if you're the Spurs this has a chance to be like a very real steal it they're not the same player but it kind of reminded me a little bit about Mike Conley and as far as what you thought he was worth at the time that he signed his deal with Memphis, I think it, they both started just about 12% of the cap and escalated. They're not the same player, but I do think there's some upside here. I can at least see a situation where DeJounte has some surplus value on this contract and how they kind of stru- structured the incentives, which totaled uh, six million one and a half a year. True shooting, 58% or higher, that's 500K, makes at least 125 three-pointers and makes an all-defense team. So you can kind of see just by that. I, I usually like to look at you know how they incentivize guys and what they're looking at as far as what they're looking for improvement-wise. And Of course, a, a lot of thing, the thing with Gizante is just becoming a better shooter and incentivizing him to maximize him, himself on defense, where he is, in my opinion, probably a fringe difference maker on defense for a guard. You can even argue full-fledged difference maker. So I, I think there's ups to this deal i think it does have some risk because of the guaranteed money but i don't really care too much about that risk in san antonio situation where they don't really have a ton of like long-term assets on their team you know what i mean like it, it was a worthwhile risk reward um assessment by them they don't have a lot of expensive long-term assets i do think they have some real long-term assets like i think that Derek white Dejounte murray they have i think Pirtle's like actually pretty interesting um like as a defensive center uh Keldon Johnson and Lucas Ominich that was just like just drafted this past year. Lonnie Walker, I'm still really interested in, especially after seeing him at summer league. Like I think they've actually done a really good job of refilling the cupboard, so to speak. Um, we'll see where it goes from here though. I, I think that they're, they, they still need the guy. I don't think they have the guy yet. That was my point. It was not like they don't, I love Derek White. I've said that numerous times on the podcast, but they don't have like the primary infrastructure on their team long-term and maybe DeJounte in his best case outcome becomes something like that. Like, I don't want to use Conley again, but maybe some kind of point guard like of that degree of goodness, potentially, which would be a great contract for him. That's why I think it makes sense is because they don't really have uh, none of these guys are really that high upside. Like, I'm not a huge Lonnie guy. I think he's going to be fine. I, I like Derek White on a winning team, but he's more of like a quality starter than he is a star. So if they right. think Jante has untapped shooting potential, he might have a little bit of star equity if you really stretch it. And that's why I think this deal is fine. Who would you rather have Derek White or DeJounte Murray if you had to pick right now? Yeah, that depends on my team situation, probably. I think White, I love Derek White, though, but he's so much older. Like, isn't he older? Like, right. by at least two years? So, like, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, no, he's like, older. Yeah. It's close. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure which one I would rather have. 
personally. If you made me pick, I think I might rather take the swing on DeJounte, but um, there are a lot of team situations out there where you could very easily make a case for White. Um, if I was the Spurs, I would rather have DeJounte, though. Um, yes. All right, the last two here, very quickly. Torian Prince, two years, $29 million. Um, This is an overpay, uh, just full on. Uh, you had an interesting theory on why you think they decided to do this. Well, I think if you're looking at acquiring a third star, potentially, you look at their bigger contracts. If you don't want to trade Levert or you don't have to trade Levert, you have Dinwiddie, I think. And then you have you now have Torian Prince and you can aggregate those two contracts to get you high into that like 30s range. And of course, there are luxury tax ramifications, all of that stipulation aside. I, I think that that might play a role here. Um, I'm, not, I'm obviously don't know for sure. Torian Prince can shoot the hell out of the ball off the catch, and he's going to fit into this offense. But from a value standpoint, um, you do get a shorter contract. But I, I do think most of the allure for a two-year deal would be you're not married to Torian Prince for four years, for example. So that could be a more tradable asset um, for the Nets, who probably will eventually look for that third guy if Karis LeVert doesn't become that. Yeah, I probably would rather have Torian Prince at 229 than for... 45 even yes. or even like 440 like I, I would just want the shorter term deal um all right the last one here jetty osman uh four years 31 million uh that last year is a non-guarantee this just seems fine to me um i don't think he's worth this right now like i think he still has some room to go but i do think that uh the route to being worth this deal is actually pretty easy for him. He just needs to improve as a shooter and like become a non-disaster defensively. Yeah, I don't mind this deal. I've not seen enough of him to really have like a really hard line stance on. This seems like a reasonable contract to me, though. I don't think the there's a lot of risk involved here for the Cavs. Like again, they have some, I guess, potential primary pieces in place. At least they think so. I, I don't know what else they're really doing with their cap space that's you know impactful. So I I don't mind this deal at all from a value standpoint. Uh, yeah, I just don't. Yeah, it's, it's whatever. I don't really care. Cole, do you have anything else you want to talk about here? Not really. I guess I will just add for the Spurs that LaMarcus Aldridge, his final year of his contract in 2020-21 is now fully guaranteed, I believe. So they've, instead of it being partially guaranteed, that happens. So I guess that has some ramifications there um, as far as committing to him for another season. I don't even know that it's commitment like that deal at $20 million <laughs> for next year is so easily tradable. Like sure. <laughs> uh, what it does do is it completely takes them out of like, they could have cleared like a very real amount of cap space. Like if someone came available that they wanted to like really make a run at. So guaranteeing this number does take them out of that mix. But um, nonetheless, like they would have had to really like let it go. Uh, they would have had to like just almost clear the books in hope that Demar doesn't uh, take the player option. So like it's it's fine. I, I think it makes sense for them to do it at the very least. Like if they want to keep Lamarcus around, go for it. Well, it's also good like reputational cred for him and the agent as well. You can trade Lamar Lamarcus if he's still this player that he is right now. You can trade him regardless on a one year, twenty four million dollar deal. That's his full guaranteed amount. That wasn't really the issue. It's more like this isn't a Pau Gasol situation where you'd really want that to be the partial seven million. So maybe you can you know wave and stretch it or whatnot. Like you can trade Lamarcus either way. It's just it's a good. I think it's a good just. 
reputational move. The Spurs operate that way. Remember when they re-signed Pau Gasol and it was to like $16 million a year number and we were like, why is it that high? And I just think that's kind of how the Spurs operate. Yeah. Um, Cole, that's about all I got. So, uh, you know, what do you, do you have anything else you want to, anything else beyond that? Do you have anything important you need to get off your chest here? Yeah, one thing. Um, how could the league dare schedule Memphis-Chicago at the same time as Pelicans-Mavs today? and like compromise me like this i'm gonna have to set up a second television really quick because i i can't like watch one over the other it's gonna be really tough i uh i am so sorry for you so <laughs> sorry for you person who has like synergy and can just watch the game without <laughs> commercials tomorrow <laughs> i have to watch games live man apparently that's not really a thing anymore like most of my friends watch it you know the next morning or the later in the night i have to watch it like right away for some of these games that's funny. Uh, Cole, please go to the Stepians. Uh, go read all of Cole's work. Follow him on Twitter at Cole's Wicker. Uh, this is Sam Vecini. Follow me at Sam underscore Vecini. Please leave ratings and reviews. Let's, uh, we got, we got to do a rating and review real quick. I'm sorry. Let's uh, go. We, we always, we always got to do it. So we've got, um, unmatched greatness from Johnny K from downtown. How does Sam do it somehow when he's not writing player evaluation evaluation treatises, watching game film on everyone from Cole Anthony to Sam Merrill and giving us spicy hot but still grounded NBA takes? He still finds time to watch and analyze every movie and TV show known to man. Cole's dope <laughs> levels of wisdom combined with Dieter's masterful ability to, con- to contextualize macro NBA issues despite being professionally spurned by Skip Bayless is truly icing on the Isaiah Joe cake. That is uh, that is a beauty. That is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful <laughs> review, folks. I am a fan. There you go. Like anything with Isaiah Joe, if we're associated with him, we're doing our job as as a podcast yeah, here. <laughs> we are the we are the only Isaiah Joe podcast out there. Um, please uh, go subscribe to the Athletic. Keep me employed. I'll keep having prospect pages going up soon. So until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.